my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, July 25th, 2012. All right, you can tell this is a full week of Fighting for the Faith when we have a light edition plugged in. Still working my way through the pile of emails that came in while I was on vacation. Woof. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of really crazy things being said out there. We try to do the discernment work, open up our Bibles and test what people are saying by looking at the context, by looking at the grammar, by looking at what God's Word says. So that uh, the idea here is is that by being discerning, you will not be schnookered. Schnookering is bad. Just, you know, I'm just saying. I'm not even sure where the word came from, but it's just bad. You don't want that to happen to you. So we are an anti-biblical schnookering um, radio program. I need to work on the, my openings to my programs. It's obvious. I'm Apparently, I've, my mind has gone crazy. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is a full week of Fighting for the Faith, and that means that I take one of the days and I plug in what I call a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. That's where I turn the, uh, the, the, the program over to an expert on a topic. Uh, we recently concluded a series of lectures by Phil Johnson uh, doing a, hist- a survey of the historical heresies that have uh, plagued Christianity. And what I'm going to do now is completely change gears, and we're going to be listening to a series of lectures presented by Dr. Corey Moss of uh, Concordia University, Irvine, California. This is my alma mater. And uh, Dr. Moss is going to be talking about early Christianity from embattled to established. And the first uh, the first lecture in the series enti- is entitled Christianity's Early Expansion. Here, here's the idea is, is that I think a lot of American or Western civilization, current, you know, modern, postmodern American, uh, you know, well, Western civilization Christians, uh, especially evangelicals, um, have no clue what to make make of the ancient church. And the reason is, part of the reason, one of the problems, is that, well, the ancient church doesn't look anything like American evangelicalism. That should be problematic for folks. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, going back to when I was uh, an evangelical, I would just think about the ancient church of, well, they were just a bunch of rubes, uh, obviously superstitious. Uh, you know, they didn't know what was going on. And so I didn't find any common ground with them and didn't know how to relate to them. Well, that's not a good thing. You you want to look at the ancient church 
and uh, and see that there's continuity in teaching and practice between Christians that you know, of of the ancient church and Christians of today. If there isn't that continuity, especially of teaching, um, let alone practice, then the error is probably not going to fall on the part of the ancient church, but of the modern church. Just a thought that I'd like you to consider. But um, this is not something that Dr. Moss is going to be discussing here. But the reason I chose these series of lectures is because I, it, it helps get you into at least some of the primary source documents pertaining to the ancient church, uh, some of the writings of the ancient church fathers. And it's fascinating to hear it from a theological historian. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Corey Moss and his lecture on Christianity's early expansion from his series, Early Christianity from Embattled to Established. Here we go. Well, it is um, past the advertised time to begin, so I'll, I'll, I'll call the meeting to order, as it were. Um, some of you might have seen me around before. I was, I was here once before to, to stand up here and speak to you, and, and occasionally uh, a guest. Um, my name, again, is, is Corey Moss. I'm a professor at Concordia University um, in the theology department there, or what we're now calling Christ College. Um, I do primarily teach um, history of Christianity, but also some of the uh, introductory theology courses for our freshmen. And when Dr. Van Voris approached me and said that there had been some interest expressed in a, in a short series on the early church, um, I asked him if, um, if I could just plagiarize from myself and, and you know, do some of what I do in my you know, survey of the history of Christianity. And he said, yeah, that would be fine. So, so before I do that, I apologize to the, the four students who have had my history of the Christian church class, um, or at least parts of it. Um, you're not going to get anything new. So if you, if you sneak out halfway through, I will not hold it against you. Um, I know that the Dr. Van Voorst has done a little bit of advertising to, to give you the basic breakdown of where we'll go over the next five weeks. Uh, today, I just want to uh, begin by talking about Christianity's early expansion. And uh, before we talk about that, uh, let's, let's talk about uh, Christianity today. Um, if you had to guess, what would you guess is the world's largest religion today? Uh, Islam, I hear a lot of people saying, no, that would, that would be not a bad guess. Uh, it's, it's Christianity. A slightly different question. If you had to guess what is today's fastest growing religion? Uh, Islam would be another good guess. It's still Christianity. Um, worldwide, of course, we're talking. Um, you know, if the, if the question was what is the largest religion in France, we might get a different answer, or fastest growing religion in England. The, the answer might be a bit different. Um, Christianity is, is about 33% of the world's population right now, um, the, the world's largest religion. And expansion has been part and parcel of Christianity from the very start. Uh, you'll, you'll sometimes hear people say that the Christianity is the first proselytizing religion, uh, the first religion that goes out of its way to, to invite other people to join it, as opposed to a sort of cultural, national, ethnic, or, or, or secretive uh, mystery cult type of religion. And, and that proselytizing uh, is not only there from the start, but um, by, by all evidence is amazingly effective from the start. Um, I'll say a few words about the, the expansion of Christianity as it's evident in the New Testament, um, but, but then we'll quickly move ahead to uh, the evidence outside of the New Testament, and, and we'll do a brief survey, spending most of our time in, in the first and second century, uh, but then just very briefly talk about third and fourth century, and then at, at week five, uh, fourth century is where we'll end. Um, if you remember... Um, your, your New Testament, you might recall that um, in those days immediately following the resurrection of Christ, according to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, uh, this is when uh, the, the disciples are having to choose a replacement for Judas. 
um, we're told that uh, the church numbered um, about 120 people. So not, not terribly large, uh, not, not perhaps terribly significant in the days immediately following Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Um, uh, a number perhaps more familiar to you takes place uh, in the next chapter of Acts, uh, on the day of Pentecost, when uh, we see the, the first great numerical growth of Christianity, when we have 3,000 converted on one day. Um, which is certainly nothing to sneeze at. I'm, I'm guessing Pastor Hodel would, would not decline 3,000 converts next Sunday. Um, but, but it is worth noting that this is, uh, this is taking place still in Jerusalem. Uh, Christianity is still very much a, a local phenomenon. Um, of course, part of the, the significance of the Pentecost account is that we have the apostles speaking in, speaking in tongues, uh, in, in languages that, that foreigners in Jerusalem hear and understand. Um, and, I, and I think we're, we're supposed to uh, take away from this uh, the, the implicit and perhaps even more explicit indication that uh, these 3,000 converts from throughout the Roman Empire take this new gospel uh, back to their homelands with them. Uh, so we could probably say that Pentecost is not only the first great numerical expansion of Christianity, but the beginning of a, of a great uh, geographical expansion. Um, still within the New Testament, um, walking uh, right up the coast from Jerusalem to Antioch, um, often called the, the second city of Christianity. Uh, this is where... Uh, Christians are first called Christians uh, rather than members of the way. Uh, we can read about uh, Paul's missionary journeys around the, the rim of the Mediterranean to places like Colossae, Ephesus, Thessalonica, um, his, his brief stay in Athens. Um, and of course, by the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison in the capital of the empire, uh, the, the hub of the empire, the city of Rome itself. All of this from, from, from an obscure outpost of the Roman Empire and about 120 people immediately following uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus um, to uh, the, the capital, the center of the empire, Rome itself, uh, with churches being planted all along the way within about the first 30 years uh, covered by the book of Acts, uh, the first 30 years of Christianity as it's described in the book of Acts. Um, during the second and third centuries and now going beyond the New Testament and, and looking at some, some extra biblical evidence, um, there's, there's also evidence of, of Christians, congregations of Christians um, in France, in Spain, uh, already in Britain, and in Africa, especially North Africa. And, and what this means is that if, if I were uh, not a technophobe and, and were using PowerPoint or something like that, I could, I could show you a map of the Roman Empire. And if we put a dot in each of those places I've just mentioned, it would form a nice outline of the Roman Empire as far as it goes south into North Africa, as far as it goes um, west into uh, Great Britain, uh, into Spain, and without putting too fine a point on it, um, we can say that by the time Christianity becomes legal uh, in the early 4th century, um, every town of, of any substantial population throughout the Roman Empire has a congregation of Christians, uh, some smaller, some bigger than others, to be sure. A couple of examples, um, and, and, if, and if you were uh, students uh, sitting in my class at the college, I would have given you some, some primary sources written by Christians or, or about Christians in this first, uh, but especially second and third century of the church, and, and you would have read this, and then I could embarrass you by just calling on you and, and asking you. <laughs> Um, specific questions. I, I won't do that, uh, partly because I don't know your names, and so I can't. But, but just to give you a, a, an impression of how quickly and how widely Christianity 
has established itself within the Roman Empire already in the second century. Um, is noted by a, a prominent Christian theologian uh, and defender of Christianity, um, a North African by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian writes uh, an apology, a defense of the church um, addressed to his, his pagan uh, intellectual uh, colleagues uh, and to the emperor himself. And he says this, uh, we, that is the Christians, are but of yesterday. We're about a century old. We are but of yesterday, and yet we have filled everything you have. Your cities, your islands, your forts, your towns, your assembly halls, even your military camps, your tribes, your town councils, the palace, the senate, the forum. We have left you, pagans, nothing except the temples of your gods. Now, Tertullian is, is, is prone to hyperbole, and, and I'll give you a, a quotation from just a bit later in this, this treatise that, that also engages in a bit of hyperbole. Um, if such multitudes of men, that is, the, the Christians within the empire, if such multitudes of men were to break away from you and betake themselves to some remote corner of the world, why, the very loss of so many citizens would cover the empire with shame. Why, you would be horror-struck at the solitude in which you would find yourselves. Now, again, a little bit of hyperbole. This is, this is certainly not the case that if in the mid-2nd century Christians decided to just, you know, pack up and move to North America, that, that the Roman Empire would have, would have been grossly depopulated and that emperors would be scouting around for, for someone to, I don't know, uh, enslave or tax or ask to build a road. It's obviously hyperbole. And yet there's something to it. Um, because Tertullian, writing in defense of Christianity, is not the only person talking this way. Um, in, in fact, some of Christianity's most prominent uh, and most persuasive critics of the second century are saying exactly the same sort of thing. Um, per, perhaps the most influential of these critics of Christianity um, is, is a, a Roman physician by the name of Celsus. He, he writes a little treatise um, on the true doctrine, which I always have to remind my students. This is a history of Christianity, and just because the title is On the True Doctrine uh, doesn't mean that it's the true doctrine of Christianity. Um, he's, he's writing this against Christianity. Uh, but even Celsus has to note part of the reason that he, he feels compelled to, to write a rebuttal of Christianity is because, quote, at the start of their movement, they were very few in number. But since that time, they have spread all around, and they now number in the thousands. Um, he's writing that probably in the eighth decade of the second century, so coming to the close of the second century. Uh, at the very beginning of the second century, um, another, another hostile witness, uh, uh, another uh, critic of Christianity, um, is the Roman governor Pliny, uh, Pliny the Younger. Uh, he's the governor of a region uh, known as Bithynia, um, which, is, which is apparently um, simply overrun by Christians. Um, so much so that, that Pliny, trying to be a, a good governor of his region, knowing that Christianity is technically illegal, it's a, it's a proscribed religion, um, when, when someone is accused of Christianity before him, um, he has them killed. But, but this is happening so frequently that, that he begins to wonder, around the year 111 AD, he begins to wonder, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Does, does the emperor really expect me to, to kill this many people just because they're Christians? So he, he has a famous bit of correspondence with the emperor, and we'll, we'll come back and have a look at that next week. But for today's purposes, um, the reason that he writes, uh, Pliny the Younger writing to the emperor Trajan in the year 111. 
Um, this matter seems to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. Many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes. For the contagion of this superstition, Christianity, has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and to the farms. And he notes in the same letter that Christianity is becoming so popular that uh, the, the traditional pagan temples of Bithynia are deserted and falling into disrepair. Uh, that that the, the, the people who traditionally sold animals to be sacrificed in those temples are going out of business because so many people are converting to Christianity that they are no longer purchasing animals to be sacrificed to the pagan gods. So Christians are claiming that they are but of yesterday and yet taking over the empire. Um, pagans are complaining that Christians are but of yesterday, but they're taking over the empire. Now, both, again, are, are engaged in a bit of exaggeration um, for, for particular purposes. So, so what might this actually look like in, in terms of real numbers or, or real percentages? Um, and, and here, I, I simply have to begin by saying uh, we, we don't have any real idea. We've got good guesses uh, based on a variety of, of different uh, measurements. Here are some best guesses. Um, from the second century, when Tertullian and, and, and Pliny and Celsus are writing, uh, from the second century through the end of the third century, probably between five and 10% of the populace of the Roman Empire is Christian. I, I mentioned that uh, in a few weeks where we'll wind up is, is in the fourth century, um, in and around the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, which gives us our, our first official definition of Christianity in the Nicene Creed. Um, the, the emperor who convenes that council, the emperor Constantine, um, a decade before had legalized Christianity. So for its first 300 years, roughly, Christianity is, is illegal, proscribed. Constantine says, um, you're now free to, to practice Christianity without fear of persecution. Um, once that happens, over the next couple of generations, Christianity expands even more rapidly. Probably by mid-4th century, we're talking about 50% of the Roman Empire confessing Christianity. And then by the close of that same century, when Christianity becomes not only a, a legal religion, but, but in many respects the only legal religion of the empire, and, and the pagan cults are suppressed near the end of the century, um, then we're probably talking about 90% of the population of the Roman Empire is confessing Christianity. Now, we, we do have to take all of this with a, with a, a grain of salt. You know, they're, they're, they're sketchy numbers and, and measurements and statistics, and uh, we, we haven't paused to define what we mean by Christianity. Uh, you know, how, do you, how do you count someone as a Christian? Uh, you know, do they have nice, tidy membership rosters like I'm guessing faith has? Um, is this, you know, anybody who's not sacrificing at a pagan temple, do we just say, well, they're not pagan, so they must be Christian? Um, everyone who's baptized, well, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss some of those issues you know, along the way. But for today, um, in light of this, this growth of Christianity, um, the, the question that I want to ask and, and dwell on for a bit is very simply, um, what in the world accounts for this growth? Why does Christianity take off like it does? And, and of course, once Christianity is legalized, uh, there, there are some certain obvious answers. Once it becomes the only legal religion, there become some very obvious answers. Uh, but today I want to focus on uh, the, the, the late first century, uh, the second century, the third century. Why does Christianity become so popular when it's an illegal religion, uh, a religion that, that could quite likely um, get you executed or imprisoned, 
why do people still flock to it? And I'll, I'll, I'll have to, to do a little caveat here, a little, little warning here. Um, there is a perfectly good Lutheran answer to this question. Why do so many people become Christians so quickly? Because the Holy Spirit made them Christians. Yeah, this is, this is the perfectly good Lutheran answer, the perfectly good Christian answer, the perfectly good biblical answer. Um, why does anybody ever become a Christian? Because they've heard the gospel preached, uh, because they've had the gospel applied, um, and because the Holy Spirit who works with the word and, and in and through the water uh, converts them. That's, that's the good theological answer, to which we'll say yes. Um, I'm going to ask us beyond that, though, to, to also think a little bit like historians and, and not just like theologians. Um, that is to say, what sorts of things might have been going on in Christianity or in the Roman Empire that, that would perhaps uh, induce people to, to pause and listen to this gospel that, that might eventually convert them, uh, to, to, to be curious about Christianity to such an extent that they might actually hear some, some scripture proclaimed. Well, in attempting to answer this question, um, let's, let's go back first to some of those people who are hostile to Christianity. So, for example, Celsus. Uh, Celsus complains Christianity is growing rapidly. For this reason, I need to speak out against it, uh, to, to, to dissuade people from becoming Christians. Celsus explains why, according to him, Christianity is growing like it does. This, this might sound familiar to you. They, the Christians, they would not dare to enter into conversation with intelligent men or to voice their sophisticated beliefs in the presence of the wise. On the other hand, Wherever one finds a crowd of adolescent boys or a bunch of slaves or a company of fools, there will the Christian teachers be also, showing off their fine new philosophy. Let them get hold of children in private houses, let them find some gullible wives, and you will hear some preposterous statements. How can one overlook the fact that Christian teachers are only happy with stupid pupils. Indeed, that they scout about for the slow-witted. Does, does that ring any bells? Did you ever hear anything like that explaining the growth of Christianity or, or the lingering popularity of Christianity today? Um, it's, it's, it's not new. Um, I won't give any contemporary examples. Um, I, I don't want to give you ammunition. Um, what I want to do is, is to say, as, as biased, as, as prejudiced, as, as cynical as that is, is there anything to it? Might there be anything to it? All right, we're going to pause Dr. Moss's lecture right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio.
Python's Flying Circus Church. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no. Well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well. Not to worry. Not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity. It's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh quite sure? Quite. Mm, not worth just looking. Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about The Great Divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, Divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Lander by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Lander by C.S. Lewis, or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity, that's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did, they sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, don't have that. Funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here, thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't, no, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, it's 1 o'clock, we're closing for lunch. I, I saw it, I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S? Yes. M-A-Y-E-R? Yes! Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated the version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Uh, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I, I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, 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 what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Huh? <laughs> yes, we got it. I see it somewhere. Yes. <laughs> I found it here. Got it. Yes, here we are. Martin Chemnitz is two natures in Christ. There's your book. Now buy it. I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I, I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I, I don't have a checkbook. I got a blank one. I, I don't have a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There we are. There's change. There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home. There's wait, 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 wait. What, 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 what? I can't read. You can't read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes.
From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> you'll laugh. <laughs> you'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm up to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Budget Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. We're back. Uh, warning. Uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they're not preaching sound biblical doctrine and preaching the gospel to you. Something you need to hear. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, a couple ways to do that. You can click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And again, let me thank you all, that uh, who, those of you who support us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We cannot do what we do without your support. Now, just a reminder, we're still in the middle of the second half of our bake sale. If you haven't already picked up your copy of the uh, of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt for the summer. It's spectacular. I'm wearing mine right now. Uh, you can get it at piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Uh, they got two colors to choose from. we got gray and white. And of course, if you'd still like to uh, get one of the bracelets that my mother-in-law made, you can do so. There's a link there that'll take you to the page that you can order that. And again, thank you for your support. All right, let's dive back into our lecture by Dr. Corey Moss uh, regarding early Christianity. Here we go. Let me give you another quotation from Celsus that, that, that's, that, that's even more, I think, would strike us as even more harsh a statement, uh, but is also, I think, revealing of there, in fact, being something to this, this explanation that Celsus provides. Quote, uh, their aim, the aim of the Christians, is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, children, these are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers. Uh, un unpack that. Um, that the aim of Christians is only to, uh, only to convince uh, worthless and contemptible people. Uh, that is to say, the kind of people that I and my fellow sophisticated Roman intellectuals find contemptible and worthless. And in case you don't know what sorts of people we find contemptible and worthless, well, let me tell you, um, idiots, uh, they're not very bright. Um, slaves, uh, beneath contempt, absolutely worthless. Um, women? Um, children? Um, there are a couple of things to this. Um, the first is simply this. Um, what Celsus says here as descriptive, uh, if we read it as descriptive of the kinds of people that are uh, flocking to Christianity and making up uh, local congregations, um, he's probably not—he's probably not far off. Uh, it, it probably is a, a large percentage of of slaves, of women, and of children. Um, the the women and children—you know—the the, the sociologists today will tell you uh, this 
This is not untrue of Christianity today. Um, go to your average church on a Sunday morning. Um, you're going to find women. You're going to find children. You're going to find very few men. But why would Christianity attract women, children, slaves? Perhaps not simply because they are idiots, as Celsus describes them, but perhaps precisely because uh, the church does not view slaves or women or children as utterly worthless and, and even contemptible. Um, that is to say, perhaps uh, the, 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 the woman or the child or the slave in the Roman Empire of the second century found something attractive about Christianity because the Christians they know did not treat them the way the average Roman pagan would have treated them. Let me give you an example of this. Um, this is Tertullian again, in the very same writing where he's, he's in effect bragging about the rapid growth of Christianity. Um, he raises the question of what the church in his day does with the offerings that they receive. You know, this, they're, they're collecting offerings in the second century. This, this too is not new. Um, what, what is new is that we've got to use these offerings to, to keep the lights on and, and to pay the pastors and to, to pave the, the sidewalks. Um, you know, they, did, they didn't have to do that at the time because, well, Christianity is illegal. It's underground. You can't build a big church. Um, your, your pastors are not going to be paid. So what, so what do we do with these, these offerings that come in? Well, Tertullian explains, quote, they're used to support and bury poor people to supply the wants of boys and girls who have no means, and parents and of old persons confined now to the house, uh, such also as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines, or banished to the islands, or shut up in prisons, and, and being banished to the mines or the islands is, is in effect being imprisoned, um, or shut up in prisons for nothing but their faithfulness to the cause of God's church, they are cared for by the Christians. Now, he ends this paragraph with a very significant quotation. So let me just pause here and unpack what he said so far. Um, the money that we collect every Sunday, every, every Lord's Day, uh, what do we do with that money? Well, we give it to or use it for the maintenance of those people Celsus would deem worthless and contemptible. Um, the poor for education. Uh, the, the people that cannot have a, a, cannot afford a dignified burial. And, and perhaps who would not be deserving of a dignified burial um, in other circumstances. Um, women, widows, uh, prisoners. And because this was so well known, Tertullian concludes this paragraph with, with a quotation that has become famous. Tertullian concludes, It is mainly these deeds of a love so noble that lead many, and he's speaking here of many pagans, uh, that lead many to put a brand on us, to, to put a label on us, to, to identify us by this, this fact, by our, our charity and our benevolence. See, they say, how these Christians love one another. Um, Tertullian does two things. One, he's, he's one of the people that gives us a, a, a snapshot of the impression of the growth of the church already in the mid and late second century. But he also tells us something, if we read between the lines, about what's at least partly propelling this growth. That, that, that Christians, uh, by their charity, by their benevolence, um, are, are loving those that the typical 2nd century pagan Roman would have considered 
not worth loving and indeed not lovable. So obvious does this become that, at least according to Tertullian, those second century Roman pagans notice this and, and say of the Christians, they're weird. See how much they love each other? Now, if I just quoted Tertullian, uh, that, that might seem a little self-serving because Tertullian is writing a defense of Christianity. He's, he's got an agenda. He wants to, to portray Christianity in the best light. So, so let me jump ahead a little bit um, and, and just say a few words about um, a Roman emperor by the name of Julian. Uh, he's, he's known to history, to history as Julian the Apostate because after Constantine legalizes Christianity in the early 4th century. Um, his son, Constantius, succeeds him on the throne, and then succeeding him is this fellow Julian. Julian wants to take the empire back to its, its, its paganism. Uh, the, the, the paganism, uh, the, 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 the worship of the gods who originally made the empire what it was. And he is having an awful go of it. Uh, between 332 and 363, um, his, his program of, of de-Christianizing and, and re-paganizing the empire is just not working. And so Julian explains in a letter why it's not working. He writes that Christianity, quote, has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It's a scandal, he says, that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that those godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us, our fellow pagans, look on in vain for the help that we should give them. Um, here is Julian, uh, a critic of Christianity, in ways trying to, to, to stamp out Christianity, admitting that we can't compete, we, we pagans, we, we followers of the old gods, because those Christians, they're just too nice. They're too charitable, they're too loving, and who would have guessed, people like that sort of thing. Um, he, he actually goes on to recommend that, that uh, the pagan priests begin imitating uh, the Christian religion and everything that they can, uh, founding hospitals and hospices and orphanages and schools, and, and basically, well, let's do what the Christians do, and then, then maybe uh, they'll come back to us. So if, if the question that we initially raised was, um, what accounts for, uh, what, what is responsible for this early uh, numerical and geographical expansion of Christianity, uh, the, the first and, and perhaps most important, or at least most frequently commented upon at the time, factor has to be this, this idea that Christianity is bending over backwards uh, to, uh, to offer aid, comfort, uh, and support, as well as evangelism, uh, to those who were otherwise despised by their contemporaries. Uh, we might say that, that love and charity were a primary cause in this. Um, I always feel it necessary to, to pause right here and say, first, that is certainly not the only cause. And even if it were, uh, the, the descriptive is not necessarily prescriptive. Um, that is, it might be easy to say, wow, Christianity exploded in the early church because those Christians were just so nice. Um, why don't we just do that today? You know, the evangelism programs, you know, scrap those, and, and then the, the arguments, scrap those. Let's just start being nice to people, and, and, you know, the world will knock on our door. Perhaps. Um, I certainly will not uh, beg anybody to stop being nice um, or to start being mean. 
Um, but it is perhaps worth noting that uh, the contrast between Christians and non-Christians was much starker in Roman antiquity than it is today, in part because even the, uh, even the contemporary pagan, if we want to use that term, has been influenced by 2,000 years of, of Christianity in the West. He or she might not be a Christian, but they think an awful lot like a Christian, at least in terms of, of charity, benevolence, love, etc. Um, a couple of other factors I'll just mention very briefly as we, we come to a conclusion. Um, one of the things that we'll, we'll spend some time talking about next week um, is a factor, and that is um, because Christianity was a persecuted religion, um, quite often the very fact of Christians being persecuted arouses a certain sympathy among the broader populace. Uh, they, they see some of the, the cruel things done to Christians and, and the way Christians respond, and they begin to scratch their heads and say, um, if I've got to choose between the persecutor and the persecuted, at least in this case, I, I think that the persecuted is, is perhaps uh, the, the right side. Um, Tertullian, again, uh, you know, font of, of famous quotations, will say something like this. It's variously quoted that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, the impression that, that martyrdom is in some sense good for Christianity, um, uh, that, that, that martyrdom brings more people to Christ. We'll say a few words about that next time. Um, the week after that, we'll say a few words about a third factor, which, which we might just call um, reasonable or persuasive proclamation slash argumentation. Um, people don't just join an organization or a religion knowing nothing about what it teaches. You, know, you, you might notice that those people calling themselves Christians, wow, they're, they're feeding the poor, they're educating the poor, they're, they're, they're rescuing people from, from slavery. I, I want to be one of those people. Well, it might make you curious about those people. You're going to want to know what those people are really about. What do they believe? And once you find out that they believe some, some, some pretty illogical, out-of-the-ordinary things, um, you might want to hear a little bit more about why you should believe that a man who is dead rose from the dead, why this man was God himself coming to earth. That, that, that sounds a little preposterous. Can you explain that to us? So a third factor might be something like a reasonable argument, persuasive proclamation. And then the fourth that I'll mention today, uh, we won't come back to, is, is, is pretty mundane, but not unimportant. Um, simple demographics. Um, I began uh, with, with a question to which I anticipated the answer would be Islam. What is the world's largest religion? What is, what is the world's fastest growing religion? Um, to the extent that Islam is a rapidly growing religion in places like uh, France, Great Britain, Europe uh, on the whole, if we were to, to ask why that's the case, um, one of the most obvious answers is simply demographics, uh, which is to say um, Muslims are having more children than post-Christian Europeans are having. Um, there's something akin to this in the earliest church. Um, it was, well, it ebbed and flowed. Uh, but there was uh, sufficiently rigorous justification in, in Greek and Roman antiquity uh, for practices like abortion, uh, infanticide, uh, the exposure of infants, that, that one of the regular complaints of, of the Roman emperors is that um, we've got a great thing going here in the empire, but if we're not reproducing ourselves... Um, we're, we're going to shrink and eventually be overrun by, by barbarians, non-Romans. Um, and there's something to this. 
the, the Christians, on the other hand, uh, growing out of, out of the, the, the Hebrew religion, are entirely opposed to things like uh, abortion, uh, infanticide, and, and exposure or abandonment of infants. Um, they tend to have larger families than their, their pagan Roman counterparts. Uh, not only do they tend to have larger families naturally, but they very quickly get a reputation for rescuing you know, the children abandoned by their, their Roman contemporaries. So, the, you know, kind of a, a two for one, you know. You guys lose one offspring and we gain one offspring. Um, it, it doesn't take too many generations for this to, to have some effect. Um, there, there is another suggestion. There are lots of other suggestions. Um, one I, I heard recently and have not had enough time to, to look at, and I'm not sure it, it deserves to be looked at too seriously, but, but this, this charity, this benevolence that early Christians uh, practice um, in, in things like hospitals, etc., or what we might now call hospitals, uh, perhaps gave them a greater immunity to disease. So they lived longer. I don't know. Uh, I mention it because there are almost an infinite number of, of answers to why does Christianity grow like it does. None of them are mutually exclusive. Um, whatever the confluence of, of factors or causes from place to place throughout the empire, um, the effect of, of Christianity's growth is, is quite clear. Uh, the Christians themselves notice uh, those hostile to Christianity notice. And once Christianity becomes legalized in the early 4th century, uh, the growth only becomes all the quicker and all the more expansive. But, and, and here's where I'll conclude, um, the legalization of Christianity was perhaps... I don't want to say probably, but perhaps postponed until the 4th century precisely because it had been growing so rapidly. That is to say, the more quickly the church grew, the more visible it became in the Roman Empire. And the more visible it became, the, the greater reason... Uh, Roman emperors, uh, the Roman state in general, uh, had to fear uh, the existence of and especially the growth of Christianity. And so as Christianity grows, makes itself more visible, uh, creates certain fears uh, in, in the politicians of Rome, uh, there is or there will be shortly a, a sort of imperial pushback uh, in the form of persecution. But that's the topic for next time. Um, so I will stop there and uh, entertain questions for a bit. It is 11.30, but if you have questions, I'll answer as many as I can. Yes, ma'am, all the way in the back. Couldn't we add to the historical development of Christianity, as you described it, going to the poor and the children and so forth, that it was a reflection of Scripture itself as Christ described a Christian being like a little child? his description of the story of the Good Samaritan and St. Paul even talking about how God has not chosen the wise because of the mindset of Christianity, of just being a Christian. This was the fruit of Christianity as it developed in history. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. And, and thank you for raising this point. It's a good one. Uh, do not get the impression, please, that, that this was in any, in any way... Uh, an organized program of evangelism, you know, the, the, that anybody in the early church was saying, all right, how are we going to get people to join? Um, I got it. Ah, ah, ah. Let's be nice to people. Uh, no, it's, it, that would be cynical. No, what's happening is, is yes, precisely this, that um, Christians are just being Christians. And, and being Christians, they are noticeably different in their being and in their behaving than the world around them. Um, there, there, there are stories after stories, you know, how many of them are, are to be taken as actual events, how many of them need to be taken as actual events, but with a grain of salt. Um, but
but of, of Christians just doing what they're doing and, and people then seeking them out because they're so boggled by the fact that Christians are doing these things. Um, and they want to know, why are you doing these things? And when they realize, well, it's because I'm a Christian, people, people take note of that and, and ask themselves if perhaps they shouldn't uh, investigate further. Yes, sir. Dr. Moss, uh, you speak of Christians in that period. Was it a homogeneous faith? Or was it a lot of factions uh, during those years? Uh, yes, very good question. Um, is is, is the, the Christianity we're talking about um, homogeneous? Are, are there factions, sects, schisms? Um, the answer is yes and no, or perhaps no and yes uh, would, would be the better way to order it. Um, what, what we've done today is uh, spent a good chunk of our time in the, in the second century as, as illustrative, but, but also ran back and forth from the fourth century. Um, during this first 300 years, there are um, a number of, of divisions within the church. Uh, some of them divisions of practice, some of them divisions of belief. We'll, we'll talk about a, a few of them, I think maybe the third or fourth week. Um, un, until we have the Nicene Creed, um, we, we don't have uh, an ecumenical creed, a, a, a universal creed. What we, we, what we do tend to have by the third century, for example, um, are, are lots of local creeds that look and sound very familiar. Uh, that, that, that often look and sound very much like what we, what we now call the Apostles' Creed. Um, so there, there, is, um, there is a very basic fundamental agreement, Jesus is Lord. Um, uh, the, the, the Pliny that I mentioned, uh, the, the, the pagan governor of Bithynia, um, he has a couple of deaconesses tortured to find out what they're doing in their, their secret worship services. Um, and one of the things that he writes to the Emperor Trajan is that um, these, these Christians, uh, they sing songs to Christ as if he were God. So, you know, here's a, here's a pagan already at the turn of the second century saying, well, these, these Christians think Jesus is God. So, yeah, that's, that's fundamental. Um, a lot of other things remain, in, in some respects, open questions um, until uh, a dispute arises. Um, and, and so we'll see a lot of that, uh, perhaps the most important, uh, the, which leads to the Nicene Creed. One of the uh, reasons for, for the spread of Christianity was that uh, it was a basic tenet of the faith. Jesus said, go and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yes, yes, good point, um, which, is, which is why um, Christianity is, is rightly called you know, the, the, the first proselytizing religion, you know, the first religion that takes seriously um, trying to, to make new members, or to phrase that a bit more Lutheranly, um, <laughs> proclaiming the gospel so that the Holy Spirit might uh, draw more people into the church. Um, yeah, this, this is not common at the time. Um, the question is, what, what does that mean and what does that look like? Um, Celsus probably gets, gets very close to it when he describes people in private homes um, just talking to their co-worker or the, 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 the servants who tend the children, you know, telling what we might today call Bible stories to the children. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a church that is commanded by its Lord to uh, proclaim the gospel, uh, but it's a church that, if and when it does so in a public fashion, um, is inviting persecution. And so we'll, we'll perhaps not always do it quite so obviously. In the end of the Old Testament, where it talks about the hearts of children being turned to their fathers, is it, I think, another one of the examples of what you called illogical? The world sees a father lifting up a, a fallen son with the tears in his eyes, and the world says, big deal, he missed a great play in the football game. And the Christianity says, no, that child will never forget that kind of love of, of Christ as a, extended to a child, and he will become something because of that. Sure. Yes, absolutely. 
absolutely. It's one of the things that, uh, again, depending on who we're talking about and when, would, would have been um, uncommon. It would have been, for, for that reason, perhaps illogical. Well, thank you very much. Uh, again, next, next week we will talk about this, this imperial pushback and, and raise the question, if, if Christians are as nice and as loving as, as some of this has led us to believe, then, then why would anybody want to arrest them, imprison them, and, and execute them? So we'll take up that question next week. Thank you. Fine lecture. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.